plagues that devastate society, priests who refuse to preach the faith, or bishops who act more like politicians. Those problems are nothing new. The church has been through them before. And during some of our, her darkest days, two women helped bring about change. Today we'll talk about these two women, St. Catherine of Siena and St. Hildegard of Bingen, with Emily Stimson Chapman, who has written in-depth studies on both saints for the Women's Apostolate in Dow. I'm Father Dave Pavonk, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavonk, and I'm the president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And today we're talking about St. Catherine of Siena and St. Hildegard of Bingen. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, who's a professor of systematic theology here at the university. Yeah. How are you? Couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's great. And Dr. Scott Hahn, also a professor here at the university. How are you doing, Dr. Hahn? Good to be with you. Good. It's a great blessing. We are also pleased to welcome our guest, Emily Stimson Chapman. Emily is an accomplished Catholic writer and speaker. Her books include The American Catholic Almanac and These Beautiful Bones and Hope to Die, which she also wrote with, uh, co-wrote with Scott, as well as A Mom. And you've got a new baby that's three months old. Yes, so we've got a two-year-old and a three-month-old. That's fa the fact that you are up and breathing is wonderful. Anything I forget, we're blaming on Beckett. That's right, so. that's great. That's good. Could I borrow that if yeah. I forget things? Sure, sure. So Beckett you were keeps me up at night. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. So why, um, why Catherine of Siena? Why Hildegard? What, what do they have to say to us today? Well, Endow, um, I wrote the studies for Endow, which is a wonderful Catholic women's ministry that brings women together to study the great saints and to talk about church documents. So really in-depth study of what these saints have to teach or what the church has to say about something. Uh, and the Catherine study I did three years ago, three years ago. Uh, and then I did the Hildegard study two years ago when Toby was a newborn. Okay, so okay. again, if I forget I'm anything, a theme. I'm seeing a theme here. But they're amazing women who were writing and teaching and challenging the church to be who the church was supposed to be in an age where women didn't do those things. Right. Uh, and both of them made the point that when priests and bishops aren't doing what they're supposed to do, then God raises up women to tell them what they should be doing. Amen to that. And they, they challenged their, their ages' understanding of sanctity. They challenged their ages' understanding of femininity. And they were both a huge part of reforming the church and culture and calling people, people back to Christ. And so in the age we live in, yeah, they're yeah. amazing models to look to for, for how we're called to be holy, how we're called to think about the church and act towards the church. and. Yeah, they're a good perspective check. Mm -hmm. It's not just that women uh, are pretty rare in, in climbing these mountains. Uh, men also uh, uh, prefer, I think, most of us to choose the route of mediocrity <laughs> so that we're always at our best. But these two uh, 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 women are extraordinary, singular witnesses to what God can do uh, with uh, human nature. I think there's also a series of parallels that are significant, you know, for us today. You think about the period of the 14th century 
and they were facing an epidemic, a plague. They were also facing deep church divisions. They were also facing clergy that was divided and somewhat corrupt. And so, you know, for the Lord to send forth women and to endow them with the Holy Spirit, to speak in that way, you know, it's, uh, there are a lot of lessons to learn from. There, well, Catherine was born a year after the, uh, the Black Death swept through Europe, destroyed you know, half of Europe, Europe's population. Her town of Siena lost about 80% of its population, some to the Black Death and some because they like jetted for the country. Yeah, they were like the New York people yeah. in New York. They're like, I'm going to the Hamptons. Uh, so they went to the 15th century England version of the Hamptons, uh, or 14th century. But, um, the, but there's this despair in Catherine's day because of the plague, because so many were indiscriminately wiped out, whole families wiped out. Monasteries and so, too. Right. Monasteries, yeah. and so a lot of the nuns and monks that are left fall into licentiousness because they're like, well, I'm just gonna live for now and do what I want. Um, you saw the whole economic system crumbling because the guild system was being destroyed. And, then, and the Pope is in Avignon. The world's falling apart and the Pope's in Avignon spending, you know, a, the equivalent of a bajillion dollars on beautiful palaces and cardinals are shacking up with their mistresses and you've got pirates raiding the Italian coast and the Islam is knocking on the door of Europe. So there is just incredible tension and people are looking to their political leaders and to their church leaders to show them what direction to go. They're all and, and Catherine comes up out of that. Yeah, she comes. Yeah, you know, it's sort of comforting to to know that uh, even the 14th century uh, was a disaster. Uh, so that the 21st uh, doesn't look quite We're so good company <laughs> when you throw it into some sort of relief. There, there was a, a fascinating book a few years ago by Barbara Tuckman, uh, just a marvelous historian, uh, called The Distant Mirror. It was a study of the, quote, calamitous 14th century. And it was utterly catastrophic. 50 million people died uh, in Europe. And I think the year after Catherine's birth, much of Siena is devastated. I mean, how does one recover from that? I mean, the sense of morale is really put to the test. Right, and Hildegard, who lived during what supposedly was an even better, so when you, have, you look at Christendom, you have Hildegard, who's at the beginning of the rise of Christendom. You know, she lives from 1098 to 1179, so this 12th century Renaissance. Catherine lives at the waning of Christendom as, as things are falling apart. But if you talk to Hildegard, she'd be like, it's a mess. There's no 12th century yeah, Renaissance right. going on. There were three schisms during her lifetime, uh, including one, which is my favorite of all time. Do you where, have a favorite schism? Oh, I have a That's favorite great. schism. That's great. It's That's so really great. Good. So you have uh, the cardinals are gathered to elect, I was it the successor to Hadrian, I can't remember, but it's 10, 1159, the cardinals gather, they elect a new pope. And the very next second, one of the cardinals sh rushes into the room and says, in the name of the emperor, you must stop. You cannot, you cannot elect this man. And the cardinal's like, whatever, what are you talking about? We've elected this man. And they, they put the papal robe on him and the papal tiara, and this other cardinal charges him and starts wrestling with him for the robe. <laughs> and then the other cardinals jump yeah. in, and so you have all of these cardinals in an all-out brawl. Yeah grabbing for the rope, and then some soldiers from the emperor break in, and yeah. everyone scurries Isn't off. that edifying? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if that happened today? So it, is, it is something to bear in mind, is yeah. that there, we have a danger, I think, at times, of saying that it's it's so bad, it's never been like this before, and yet the reality is, is we have a history of difficulties. So may, maybe just, <clears throat> how so how does a Catherine come about in a world like that, or Hildegard come about their families and their faith, and 
how is that protected? Well, how they is have that? very different stories yeah. because Catherine, Catherine is a saint almost from the second she's born. You know, she's charming, she's beautiful. When she's three, she's playing little games as she goes up and down the stairs. She says a Hail Mary on every stair. Yes. You know, Toby's like yeah, hurling yeah. trucks across the room and <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm dropping the ball so, here. Saints, saints come in many different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but she, at five, she has her first vision of Jesus. She's walking through the streets of Siena and she sees Jesus enthroned in majesty above, above her in the sky. At seven, she runs away because she wants to be a hermit and she levitates in a cave and then God mystically transports her back. So Catherine has these amazing experiences of holiness from the time she's a little girl. She vows at the age of seven, she, is, she only wants to be married to Jesus. She will always be his bride. She will never marry. And so her journey is more, she didn't want to enter a convent though. And so that became, her parents wanted her to marry, but if she wasn't going to marry, she could at least enter a convent because, you know, Nice saintly women don't levitate in the streets or have ecstasies or do things like you go do that behind a cloister wall. Well, you know, it's it's quite amazing that she even survived. I mean, she they, her mother had about what twenty three children. She had the last children, two of which yeah. were twins, and one doesn't survive her first year. And Catherine manages to squeak by, uh, and yet half the the children were wiped out. Uh, I mean, that's pretty typical uh, in that age. I mean, life is precarious. You live it on the edge, and she manages some somehow to survive and to mount uh, this this sanctity that is unbelievable. Yeah. No, and she she was, I mean, that was typical for most, most women lost half their children in childbirth. Yeah. One in five or women parent, dialed parent, in childbirth. Parent, so yeah, parent. so women did not have a great lot. You pretty much had to marry or you went off to a convent. And Catherine was determined to live this, this holy life with Jesus in the world, primarily in her room though. Like she did not want to be going off and talking to Pope. She did not want to be, she wanted to sit in her room all day long and talk to Jesus because she did. From the time she was a young girl, Jesus and Mary and the saints appear to her and Jesus teaches her how to read. Like she yeah, learns how to read mystically. She has all these amazing visions. God's teaching her so much. Um, and so her, her path to sainthood eventually becomes she has to go out in the world. She does not want to do that, but God clears the path for her. Hildegard's the exact opposite. Hildegard uh, was dedicated to religious life by her parents when she was a little Almost girl. One of the things you talk about in the book is a tithe, yeah. a tithe of the family, which is really an interesting idea, which she, she would later come against. She would later write against that. Yeah, yeah she, so she grieved, grieved the loss of her parents. She was sent away at eight to live with a cousin who was supposedly a very holy woman. Um, and she lived with her cousin, a sort of a quiet, retired life for about six years. And then they became anchoresses at a Benedictine monastery. And the, the cousin was always considered the holy one. She did the things people thought was holy. She you know, starved herself and beat herself and women flocked to her and came to her for guidance. And Hildegard was always second fiddle. We don't know a ton about Hildegard until she's 35 and her cousin Juta dies. And the monks are like, oh, well, let's make Hildegard the, the prioress, she won't give us a lot of trouble. And Hildegard did nothing for the next 45 years. <laughs> I give those monks trouble. Hildegard was the, Catherine was lovely. And although she was strong, she was sweet. And, you know, she's levitating at seven. And Hildegard is arguing with monks and sending these, you know, angry missives off to everyone who doesn't agree with her and calling the emperor. She said, either you're behaving like a totally insane man or a petulant child. I'm not sure which, <laughs> you know, she's, she's fiery and angry and she's, but she's great at manipulating the monks. She always, whenever they won't give her her way, she gets very sick 
It's always amazing how sick she gets. And her recoveries are always miraculously timed with them deciding, okay, Hildegard, you can have what you want. And she'll, the, the text will say she leaps out of her bed and everyone was amazed at the instantaneous cool. healing. I was like, okay. <laughs> but uh, she lives to be 80. Catherine dies when she's only 33. Um, and Catherine, Hildegard really has to work out her sanctity. And you see her growing in holiness over a long period of time and learning to gentle her tongue and get along better with the sisters. Lots of women come to join her and leave because she's so difficult. You know, she's total choleric, melancholic. Mm -hmm. um, and, but so there are two paths that are so different. And yet God is always there calling them, clearing the way for them. Um, Hildegard rises to power when, or rises to influence when the monks are like, she's got all these crazy visions. I think we want to get rid of her. What do we do? Let's call it a papal team to investigate. So they think that's going to take care of it. Instead, the visions end up getting back to the Pope who reads them at a council of all the bishops and he's moved by them. And so then she just skyrockets to, yeah. to influence and everyone in the 11th or 12th century wants Hildegard's advice. So God, when God wants you to yeah. do something, well, he that, clears That's really, I think, the instructive theme here. It's not that they set out to change the world, but they were determined to change themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to reform the church. I'd rather conform myself to Christ, assume this cruciform form, uh, this shape uh, in relation to the crucified Jesus. And then all these graces uh, are unleashed. So don't look to make the world better, try and make yourself better, and you might surprise the world by improving it as well. Right. No, there's, it's the definite, you see it's their holiness. You know, that's what right. attracts people to Catherine. That's what li people listen to with Catherine. Hildegard, eventually it's her holiness, but, but there's power in her saying what God once said. There's power, and Hildegard's a teacher. She's a catechist. Yeah. So when you read her books of visions, it's easy to get distracted by the the beasts and all this wild, vivid imagery. But what she's really doing in book after book is teaching the faith. So her first book, Sivius, it's a catechism. She walks you through how God made the world to be, how he wants us to live in the world, and what's going to happen if we don't. Um, her last book, The Book of Divine Works, it's a beautiful refutation of the Cathar heresy. It's this meditation on how the Gospel of John shows us that God is one in three, that the human person is made in his image, that the material world is good because it reflects God. Uh, and it's easy to miss that stuff because beasts are right, so right. exciting. Yeah, You're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh, there's a beast that's the church that's raping the church. Wow! Yeah. But really, that's that's masking. Um, and so she's proclaiming the truth, and I think that's what both of them do. They proclaim the truth. They say yes to Jesus, and they proclaim the truth, and people respond to that. Even it's, if it's deeply reassuring that God provides His church with saints, especially in unlikely times with very unlikely figures, you know, who then become doctors of the church, you know, declared as such. But it reminds us too that, you know, every age faces a crisis and in the end, the crisis is always, as St. Jose Marie would say, a crisis of saints. And so the culture is not going to produce saints. The Holy Spirit will for the crises that those cultures face. And I think that's one of the things that it was interesting was just that, that Hildegard in her time, Catherine over her time, was specific to her time. I don't know, I mean, who's to say how Catherine would have, there were saints, so they probably would have managed it okay. But just the uniqueness of that particular person at that particular time, and, and you can see that. Now that's it. God raises up saints for the world now. So Catherine didn't look like saints who had come before her. Hildegard didn't look like saints who had come before her, because God didn't need them to be that kind of saint at any other, you know, 
he needed Catherine to be the kind of saint she was in the 14th century. And so sainthood for us is not going to look like it did necessarily for Catherine and Hildegard, which is good because Catherine and, didn't eat. And so. even that, that, well, there's more to talk. So uh, stay with us. We're going to be back in a couple of moments uh, to speak more about these amazing saints. Uh, stay with us at Franciscan University Presents. I'm a member of the household Beloved First Truth, a group of women um, devoted to St. Catherine and her writings. Um, and the name Beloved First Truth actually came about as the kind of endearment that St. Catherine referred to God as. And we in the household try to take that as carrying Jesus in our heart as our Beloved First Truth, but also sharing Him with the world um, in our evangelization, in our preaching efforts. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about St. Catherine and St. Hildegard with our guest, Emily Stimson Chapman. Uh, one of the things I think that was, again, just to reiterate, is so important is that the Lord, and it's always the working of the Lord, raises up saints at a particular time in a particular culture and circumstance. And you see the difference between these two. Um, maybe just a little bit more about Hildegard and all the things that she was involved in in, in her world and how that impacted ultimately what it looked like for her to be holy. Yeah, I mean, Hildegard's amazing. So she, uh, she's known in different quarters of the culture now for different things she accomplished. What, Sounds like everybody can grab onto something Every, that they like yeah, about her. Yeah, everyone, the New Age people, yeah. the musicians. So she wrote two books that are basically, one is about plants, one, one's a bestiary, so uh, physica and causes and cures. She was, she was an herbalist. She mm. was a doctor. We don't know why she was an herbalist. Yeah, yeah. Where, where's this knowledge came from? She might have learned it from the monks. She might have... Um, she might just have studied on her own. Mm -hmm. A lot of her, it just reflects the basic ideas of the day. So it's very common medicine for the 12th century, but she was an expert on it. She knew what she was talking about. Then she also wrote songs and that was her great love. Right. She loved writing songs and plays. So even her play, everyone sings except for the devil who shouts because mm -hmm. uh, the devil hates music. But uh, so she wrote beautiful music that was rediscovered in the 70s and won a Grammy award and it's, um, her, she writes in a free verse, almost like T.S. Eliot. So she uh, anticipates E.E. Like <laughs> e. Cummings and T.S. Eliot by, by a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And then you have her catechisms. You have where she's, she's explaining church teaching and she has this deep knowledge of scripture and the church fathers. So she has this lively, brilliant mind. She had advice for everyone on everything. Cookies, <laughs> how you should be dressing your religious. You know, she think I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> she she must have been quite oh. impossible to live with. <laughs> <laughs> religious life is great. <laughs> <laughs> it, really is. it really is. You can talk to my husband about Altogether that. Altogether um, too much. She was so much and she, the nuns often struggled with it because Hildegard always thought she was right. Yes. You know, she was she was right 99% of the time, and a lot of her letters when she was, she was actually right a lot of the time, but she would tell you that she was right. And there's lots of I told you so's in her letters, but that's but God used all that. Right, he right. used this strong, lively mind, this strong, forceful personality who can take on because the popes and the emperors were going back and forth through almost her entire life. There's everyone's deposing and excommunicating someone. They're, they were having a war between the pope and and the the German emperor, or the Holy Roman Emperor. So a shrinking time. violet wasn't going to cut it. No shrinking violet. Yeah, she yeah. It was, she was a strong, forceful woman. Who was a wreck like most, like a lot of strong force women? I know she was struggled with anxiety her whole life. She was always anxious. She was always worried. Um, 
I think she felt like a lot was riding on her and she could never. She built two monasteries. She was general contractor on both of them. You know, I think she carried a lot of weight and a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. It sounds like she was an ideal candidate for therapy. (laughs) 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 But God uh, healed her, uh, apparently. And he gentled her. So that's one of the fun things that you find. There's uh, she gets a new secretary when she's in her 70s. And he, her reputation had preceded her. So he went expecting this forceful hurricane of a woman. And he writes that what he found instead was a gentle mother. And you see how, how time and her continual yes to Jesus and her suffering, both her anxiety, her physical suffering, the loss yeah. of people she loved, that it gentled her and made her more compassionate. And I like that because God was using Hildegard even when she was not levitating. She was not bilocating. God's like, you are a person I'm going to use. You have a charism. We're working through you. But her sainthood comes about over the course of 80 years of saying yes to God and suffering. And I find that very encouraging. Well, how soon after her passing is she declared a saint? Well, it was her... Honestly, she wasn't officially formally declared a saint until she was declared after the church by Pope Benedict XVI. Is that right? Yeah. So she was. There was it started and then stopped. It started and really stalled. Sure and there was local cult and devotion to her, and people referred to her as St. Hildegard. But she, she died before that whole formal process of right. canonization came in. And no. so, uh, yeah, so when. Benedict declared her a doctor of the church is actually when she was officially canonized. And and there aren't very many women who are doctors of the church, about four or five. There's Teresa of Avila, Therese, Catherine of Siena, and And they're quite remarkable. (laughs) Yeah, it's good company to be in. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's definitely good company. But no, I think she's encouraging in that front because I'm not going to be levitating anytime soon. But I'm like, you know what? If God gives me 80 years, to figure it out, to I work figured it out. out if Hildegard can become I'm, a saint, like I can become a saint. <laughs> I think it's important to remember that holiness is not something that you have possessed. You don't, you don't possess holiness at any one point. The Holy Spirit comes to possess you more and more. Uh, and so when you look at somebody like Hildegard or earlier, Jerome, I mean, they are feisty to the end. And yet at the same time, holiness is something that is maturing through them and in them. And so, you know, it raises the question, what is holiness? Because, you know, you go back about a century, and Rudolf Otto wrote a famous and influential book called The Idea of the Holy, where, you know, he's just looking at the experience of holiness, and he's seeing this mystery that causes people to tremble and also to be fascinated. You know, but that can't be the definition of holiness, because however you define holiness has to apply to the third person of the Trinity, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is not trembling before the Father and the Son. And so likewise, holiness is not the same thing as righteousness, ethical rectitude. I mean, they're inseparable. But I think Aquinas really nails it when he distills about a thousand years of Christian wisdom in defining holiness in his compendium as the perfection of love. Not only does that apply to the third person of the Holy Trinity perfectly, but it also applies to people who struggle with their own strengths and weaknesses, their temperament, and other people's temperament throughout a lifetime of relationships that are always going to be, you know, the chisels in the hands of a divine sculptor who is not only, you know, sculpting you to be a saint, but using you as a chisel for other people too. I I love that definition of perfection of love. 
It's yeah. love in action, not in, in dreams or right. soft soap right. and sentimentality. I mean, Dostoevsky has a great phrase, love is a harsh and dreadful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed it must be because Dante reminds us that it's enough to move the heavens, the stars, and the planets. So I think a certain strength, a tenacity of, of spirit must inform these people. I, I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures of St. Uh, Al Aloysius Gonzaga. He's got this damn lily in his hand uh, and it suggests this pale, pallid, backward child, utterly timid, he wasn't at all like that. I mean, he perished in the plague in Rome because he, he was determined to be there and, and minister to the victims of the plague and he fell victim himself. He was tough, resolute. I mean, that's the quality I think that we see writ large in these two women. But they are just amazing women. I, I've, never, I've never stumbled upon women like that before. What I appreciated though is, is to build on both those is that it was a continued work. A holiness isn't something that I just, I mean, I need to decide that I desire to be holy, but ultimately it's a work that the Lord is doing. So when you watch and see how the Lord worked in Catherine, it was profoundly different than how he worked in Hildegard. And she needed the 80 years, right? And maybe <laughs> Catherine needed only needed, one of them. Catherine needed 33. And, but that, that idea of, of this process mm -hmm. of transformation and, and all of the things that you spoke about, particularly with Hildegard, and the people and the struggles and the difficulties and cousin and all of that, the Lord uses all of that to bring about his purposes in her. Right, and I love what Regis said about the tenacity, because that's yeah. what you really see in both of them. And it's a tenacious love, not just for Jesus, but for the church. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because both of them had every reason to be angry at the church, yeah. to wash their hands of the church, to be like, look, I have been telling you what Jesus told me one-on-one -on -one personally for all these years. You're not listening, you're weak, you're cowardly. You keep refusing to preach the faith. You won't go back to Rome, or you won't be merciful. You won't just have the humility to say, actually, I was wrong. I am the Pope, or I am the, you know, he is the Pope, I'm the Emperor. But they could have been outraged, they could have walked away, they could have gone off with any of the other groups that their people were always being like, ah, I don't think so, we're going to have our own little, you know, heretical sect. They didn't, they clung to it, they clung to the church, they fought for Christ's bride. And I think that's one of the, uh, the differences is that uh, I have people tell me all the time what they feel the Lord is saying, you know, this is what the Lord should do, this is what the Lord should do for the university. And part of it is this, I think that the history, the, the way they were tenacious. They continued to not, not go away. They continued to wrestle. They continued to engage. They continued to walk with. And ultimately, they did it in charity. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things mm -hmm. that's key is, it, is, is that there's a charity, there's a, a yeah. deep love for the church that has well, to be. I mean, isn't that really what energized a guy like Francis of Assisi, a deep abiding love mm -hmm. for, for Christ and the church? He suffered for the church. I mean, he could have chosen the route that Martin Luther took and despised the church and tried to destroy it, but instead he deepened his attachment to the church. He wouldn't even rebuild the church without first getting permission from a pope who was probably not uh, a model of sanctity, but he had to work through the medium of, uh, mm -hmm. of the body. But this love, I think, has to be recognized as something that is a divine gift. It is supernatural. Mm -hmm. It isn't just the natural affection that I have for my family right. or for my parish, you know, or for the Catholic Church such as it is. You know, it's a recognition that the, the Catholic Church is a mixed bag. You go back to the second and third centuries from Cyprian on, Cyprian on, you have this language of 
what is it, Casta Meretrix, the, the chaste whore. Right. You know, and Taconius in the fourth century, who Augustine draws from, because though he was a Donatist, you know, and thus a Puritan when it comes to not mixing with, you know, lukewarm Catholics, he himself was excommunicated because of the, the doctrine that he develops of the church is the body of Christ, but it's bipartite, it's twofold. It's mixed, as Augustine would say. It's black, it's white. It's sheep, it's goats. And you have to love the whole thing. You don't love the black, the evil, the goats. And yet at the same time, you recognize that the church in its essence is coming from heaven to earth, like the New Jerusalem. It's coming from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's that which takes your heart and puts it in a divine grip. And I think if you allow that to grow, you can put up with the childish antics of the clergy as well as the princes and everything in between too, right. when it comes to the laity. But it, 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 it can't happen just strictly by natural means. You know, right. grace builds on nature, but it's grace that is necessary. Right, God infuses into, Catherine has this amazing dialogue uh, in the dialogue with God where she's begging for mercy for the church and she's yes. begging for mercy for sinners. And so it's very reminiscent of Abraham, you know, arguing with God. But God, at one point, he's like, you know, I love all of them infinitely more than you do. <laughs> okay, right. like That's why I'm going to pour my mercy out, because the littlest bit of love you have is just a reflection of my right. infinite, great yeah, love. It's really and telling. so yeah. our love comes from him. It's a grace. And, and our grief does, too. Right. Yeah. So when we're grieving over the, the misdeeds of the leaders or of the corruption and, you know, just how people are, so many people are lost, you know, it doesn't start in our heart, it starts in Jesus' heart. Right, yeah. And that recognition enables you to prayer, to pray with a kind of humble fervor, you know, uh, where this is not from me, this is from you, and so take it back. You know? yeah, and to go to him, like yeah. when we're mad at the church, when we're mad at a bishop, right. we're mad at a priest, we're mad at fellow Catholics, go to God, because right. he's gonna be the only one to give you <laughs> yeah. the love that's there, gonna sustain this, uh, you. There's this marvelous passage where God says to Catherine, nothing you do, nothing you can do would please me nearly as much as knowing how much I love you, that it somehow overmasters everything. The extent of that love can cover a multitude of shortcomings. And, and this, this line from Daniel Liu uh, really uh, impresses me. He says, I love best of all that church mud splashed, from history. Every age of the church is mud splashed. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're looking for a clean uh, uh, a body, uh, you, you're living in, in the wrong world, the wrong solar system. That's never been the case. But again, that there, there has to be, and, and we've talked about it and reiterated, but there has to be this, this love of the church. And, and that's, that's expressed by um, willing to speak out right? Mm -hmm. But then if that's not done in charity, if it's not done in a sense of even humility, right? Although they were very confident, but that doesn't, there's not an, uh, those things are not mutually exclusive, right? The humility and the speaking out and things need to change. Right. And they were both able to do that. No, Catherine was always respectful and loving and dear as Papa. And she was so gentle. And that's what attracted the popes to her. That's why they listened to her. Hildegard, <laughs> was, she wasn't always, but that she didn't win those arguments when she was being her yeah. sharpest. You know, she won people over through being faithful to Jesus. Great. Yeah. And we will be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. I'm coordinator of a household on campus, Beloved First Truth, which is dedicated to St. Catherine of Siena. 
And one of the things that we seek to imitate is Catherine of Siena's intense love for Christ, which can be a bit off-putting because her penances are so extreme, like flogging herself as a child. But when Jesus talks to her in the dialogues, he actually tells her that it's important not to suffer for its own sake, and furthermore, that we shouldn't be caught up in our own depravity because we are redeemed. And so I think it's important to consider when we're looking at those penances that she may not have been perfect in doing all of them, and what we're supposed to imitate is the intense love behind them. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record in the Communication Arts Studio here at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment, and members of our theology faculty, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, and I are discussing St. Catherine of Siena and St. Hildegard. And our guest is Emily. Emily, you've spoken several times about how different they were and how they engaged, like just their personalities. And yet they, there was something common to what they both experienced, and that was suffering. And that suffering had a deep impact on their life and, and was part of the transformative process for them. So maybe speak to that. Okay, well, Catherine is, she's sort of your classic suffering saint. I mean, she had the physical mark. She had the stigmata. She had a pain in her side. She was always telling Jesus, you know, whatever <laughs> someone she loved was going to die or suffer. She's like, let me take on their sufferings, Lord. Visit their sufferings from purgatory on me. And he's going to be like, okay, here you go. Here's, here's a nail in your hand. Here's a pain in your side. Uh, but she had normal suffering too. She lost her beloved sister. She grew up in a city that was devastated by the plague. She had people who she loved that were opposed to her, that spoke against her, that criticized her, that mocked her. Her reputation was dragged through the mud by people she sought to help. Um, she watched as the church fell into schism at the end of her life, despite all of her efforts, and she couldn't do anything to stop it. Yeah. Um, so she felt all of the normal frustrations of somebody who's given their life to something and has so much of it thrown back in their face. Um, with Hildegard, you have the same thing. You have people who mistrust her, who accuse her of witchcraft, who are criticizing her every move from what she, how she dresses her nuns to how she wants to you know, build her monasteries. Um, she lost, she lived a long life. And when you're, she lost everybody she loved. She lost her parents. She was sent away from them at a young age. She lost her best friends. She lost her most trusted secretaries. Um, she also had some degree of physical illness in her life, although I remain skeptical that she was quite as sickly as <laughs> it sometimes is made out that she was. Um, and it's easy to look at those saints and be like, oh, well, of course they could handle all that suffering. They were saints. They were saints, right? right? Like, right. But they were women. <laughs> they had the same tolerance for physical pain that we do. They have the same tolerance for emotional pain that we do. It's not that they were more equipped to suffer in some sort of supernatural sense from the first day. 
It's that they loved Jesus and they accepted that suffering. And it was the suffering that made them holy, not the holiness right. that made it possible for them to do these. Yeah. I mean, it feeds off itself. So yeah, as I mean, you other, grow in yeah, holiness. Otherwise, you're you left with a kind there. of masochistic fixation on right. pain, as if to say, I need more and more of this. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm addicted to anguish. I mean, that's really stupid. Uh, yeah. and, and the saints were not at all like that. Uh, what, what strikes me about Catherine is that her life parallels uh, so neatly the life of Jesus. I mean, she was born on the Feast of the Annunciation. She lives to age 33. She's got the stigmata. I mean, the conformity to Christ is so exact as if it were almost choreographed, you know, from, uh, from another, uh, another uh, angle, another altitude. God was sort of orchestrating uh, her life. With, with Hildegard, to go to 80 or, or so, that, I mean, she must have been self-medicating. I mean, how, how did she pull this off? <laughs> Nobody lived that long in, in the medieval world. She needed a lot of time to be made holy. She, <laughs> you need to read her books about natural herbs. It was all the herbs. She was like a naturopath from the start. So. But no, but I think Catherine with that conformity, you know, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus gives her a wedding ring, you know, so she is yeah. his bride. And that's Catherine's deepest desire in life is to be conformed to Christ. And at one point she's begging him to die. And he's like, no, you can't die yet. And she says, well, can I at least experience what you experienced when you descended to into hell? Like, can I please like feel the pain that you felt? So she, I mean, she sees herself as his wife. She is his bride and she yeah. wants to know and experience everything her beloved husband has experienced. And Jesus allows that. And so I think when you look at all of the great mystical writers that are women from, from the Middle Ages, nobody has the same level of intimacy right. with Christ that Catherine has. Like there is something special about Catherine. It, it seems to uh, have surpassed even the, the intimacy of Paul because I mean, Scott, you can correct me if I'm mistaken, but Paul says, look, I'd be willing to go to hell or to feel abandonment for the sake of my kinsmen. So he's driven by that, a love for his kinsmen. But Catherine, I mean, her desire to go to hell is pretty straightforward. I, I want to be conformed exactly to you. You experience that abandonment, so uh, why can't I? I mean, some would say that's pretty sick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I asked God to spare me <laughs> a little toothache or a slight headache, but Jesus, I want to go to hell this afternoon. Can, can you oblige me? Yeah. I mean, and it's out of insane. love. It's out of right, love. Right. Out she of wants love. to understand and know everything and experience everything that her beloved has experienced. Yeah, yeah. So, and most of us just don't love them. But again, Catherine was super holy right out of the gate. The girls right, praying yeah. Ave Maria's as she goes up the stairs at three years old. She was four and they had a little group of all, the, she decided she wanted to be a penitent. And so she had all the neighborhood kids pretend, like whipping their backs and saying our fathers and they all followed her around. So There's this profound love from the start. And, but there was profound brokenness in the church. And so God, God but at the that. same time, I mean, this is all happening against the backdrop of a medieval world where the ideal of sanctity is still held out as something worth pursuing. I mean, unlike our age where success matters more mm -hmm. than sanctity. So at least uh, it, it does exist. I mean, it's been sort of attenuated, corrupted, dissipated. But for the most part, this is what we believe in. This is what matters. This is a Christian civilization. So if you can be a saint, that, that is really the most productive use of your time, and Catherine pulls it off in this just prodigious way. <laughs> but as saint in the midst of, in, in just having everything we've gone through in our country in the last year, 
in the midst of a pandemic. And, and doesn't, I mean, I know myself over the last many months, there have been times I've complained about this and why do we have to do that? And it shouldn't be like that. But it's just so God that, that he raises up men and women in the midst of where we find ourselves and, and takes that and baptizes and changes and transforms and uses her as a light to bring other people. I guess I have a question about how applicable these women are for our <laughs> life today because you know we can underscore the analogical parallels you know a pandemic a plague you know corruption and all sorts of schism and uh, I could go on but you know back then it was medieval Christendom for better or for worse it was convents and monasteries you know it was Christendom so you had you know uh, presumptuous princes but you know, they were all Christian, you know, and so you have the, uh, the secular arm in the name of Christ, that one sword. And so, you know, Avenue and Papacy, oh, that's terrible. I get that. But when you can compare it to a post-Christian culture where convents and monasteries have mostly shut down yeah. in the last 30, 40, 50 years, with a few awesome and beautiful exceptions, you know, you're dealing now with something that is almost hyper-secularized, devangelized, and so now you can't just simply run off to the convent and reform it. You can't just simply identify monasteries, you know. Uh, and so the, the discontinuity, the disconnect, I think, is also going to be in the back of the minds of our viewers, you know. And so how do you, how do you take that kind of sanctity which was flourishing in a decadent Christendom and apply it to something yeah. that is, it's almost unimaginable for us to think of medieval Christendom. I don't even think most Catholics would want medieval Christendom mm -hmm. to be restored, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they, they don't want Catholic culture or Christian civilization. Right. We're just so at home in Babylon. It's like, you know, one of the prophets, uh, when, he, when Jeremiah said, you know, you're going out to uh, exile, so build houses and plant gardens and pray for the peace of the city to which the Lord your God drives you. And then later, what drives Jeremiah crazy is that these exiles no longer think of themselves as being in exile. They're so at home in Babylon, you know. And so how do you transplant sanctity into a situation like ours from lives like theirs? Because I think you just look at the women. Like Catherine and Hildegard were not caught up on Christendom. Okay, rebuilding Christendom was not like yeah. their goal. They thought their world was a mess. And so if you actually look at the teachings, like look at what Catherine's writing about in the dialogue where she talks about the mercy of God and the love of God and how Christ is the bridge and how we use the virtues to cross over the bridge to God. Like you go to the women because sanctity may manifest differently in every age, but it's always about the same God. I and get that. I, I do. Love. I just think that St. Martha would say, Mary, you know, has an easier path, and we have a much more difficult path, especially women who have families, women who have, you know, parishes that are divided and that kind of thing. Uh, in a, in a, a feminist, secular, divided world, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm not saying we don't have lessons to learn. I'm just saying we have to translate this from an ancient language practically into a modern one, you know, and we need really weird saints today. And that's, what, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what we need, is we need men and women 
who will be disciples of Jesus, who will allow their life, and ask the Lord in the same way, do whatever you need to do to transform me, make me the man of God that you want me to be, allow me to follow every inclination, every movement that you ask, and then it's gonna make yeah. the, the same I, I, the you day. You say yes. yes, you say yes to suffering, you say yes to Jesus, right. I, you say but yes I to conformity. I, I can't help but think that those two women were made of much sterner stuff uh, than we are. Uh, C.S. Lewis made the point that, <laughs> imagine this, that people lived uh, for thousands thousands of years without penicillin, without chloroform. I mean, we have both and, and all of their offspring, and we complain bitterly about uh, the sun not, not showing its face uh, by 10 a.m. Uh, and uh, Scott, you make a really smart point. In some ways, however, it's more difficult today to be a Christian than it was seven centuries ago. Right. A post-Christian world is really a challenge. Yeah. Because, I mean, when, when the Pope went to Poland and said, look, you cannot exclude God from the history of man, because his history sort of unfolds from within the ambit of God, he was saying something that they could identify with. But nowadays, I don't know that that's true. We want God excluded from but man. The saint, so inconvenient. But, yeah, but yeah. the saint is the one who encounters this God and then tells the world what they've encountered. I mean, if you look at both of their stories, yeah. is they're telling the popes, the people around them, the monks, the priests, what they're experiencing and how God is working in their life. And I think that that's what, what we have. Again, more young men and women, men and women who are willing to speak what God is doing and speak what He's doing in their heart and speak to how He's transforming their life. And then that captures the imagination of a people or a culture and age, and we have a saint. I, guess, I think that secularity, or I should say secularism, calls for a weirdness that is almost unrecognizable. That is, to be subtle, to be sacred stealth, you know, and to do it so that, you know, you can be a saint in the middle of the world, you can be a contemplative at your workplace, and you have to do it in a subtle way. You have to do it, I mean, there are gonna be some people who are ostentatiously weird and sacred Man, and brother. prayerful, all of that, you know. But I, I also think that what the church hasn't seen enough of are those people who are in the midst of the world and yet doing holiness, doing apostolate, doing prayer, doing mortification, yeah. and all kinds of those things that you're like, well, you, you, you need a convent for that or a monastery or at least, you know, Franciscan University of Steubenville, yeah. uh, places but, that but, are so conducive to But this. to that end, and I think that's what Francis has to offer, uh, St. Francis has to offer the conversation is that this was going to be lived out there in the particular and I'm going to get on a soapbox, that the third order regular Franciscan of which I am is if culture is going to be transformed, it has to be done from the inside. Right. That one can't hide, one can't run away from the pandemics and the COVIDs and, and the difficulties and the struggles in the church. Rather, one has to engage that. And there's not going to be transformation and change unless that we as individuals make the decision to do that, no matter where we are. Right, and it's important that Catherine and Hildegard were women at a time when women were not supposed to be preaching or teaching or writing letters to the Pope. And I think the parallel today is the laity. So at a time during their world when the priests and the bishops were corrupt, God raises up these two women who both were religious in a sense. Catherine was a, a lay Dominican and Hildegard was religious. And today you see lay people and there's lots of people who don't like lay people writing and talking about the faith. And I have gotten blowback from plenty of people for writing the endowed studies when I don't, you know, I'm not a religious mm -hmm. sister. I'm like, but God is calling up lay Amen. people all the time to do this. And so we're the different voices he's raising up. We're the ones who can be out in the secular world that's not looking to priests and religious. And so the basic model stays the same. And when you dig down into the lives of these women, like 
That's why I love them, because yeah, you can yeah, relate yeah, to yeah, them. Yeah. And so, so they're Toby not that and different. Beckett are the chisels. They're, they're, future, <laughs> yeah, they're the future scenes as well. Beloved, cute chisels. Yes. And up next, our panel and our guest will share their final thoughts on St. Catherine and St. Hildegard. Please stay with us. One of my favorite things about St. Catherine is her inner cell. Um, and her inner cell was a spiritual retreat for her to foster an abiding, an awareness of God's abiding presence within her, even in the chaos of her daily life and her ministry. And I think this is so important for us today because we claim that we're so busy, we don't have time for God, we're distracted. But Catherine proves that's not true because she was always living in two homes, a real physical home and her spiritual home. And that was like, an inner chamber where she could be alone with God. And then in that self-knowledge, she could then move outward and share his presence with others. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So Regis, if you could start us off with your final thoughts. Yeah, uh, let me begin by uh, paying tribute to you. Uh, this, this is a wonderful series. I've, I've seen two, and you tell us that there are more to come. They're in circulation even as we speak. And you've launched, uh, or you and your, your group have launched this movement that appeals uh, uh, to, to women. Uh, and uh, it may take over the world, uh, who knows, but it, it, it's so rich and captivating. And, and your prose, which adorns these studies, is, is so lucid uh, uh, and incisive. Uh, so it, it's a, a fabulous uh, project that you're, you've undertaken, and I hope it, uh, it prospers. I hope it makes a big splash. Thank you. But people are tired of reading Scott. Uh, <laughs> it's time to read Amen. you. Yeah. Uh, just a, an observation, when, when young people converted uh, back in Rome, when it was still a pagan uh, universe, they made a discovery. They were confronted with the discovery that now the center of their life was no longer the society, the imperial state, or even their parents, but Christ. He was the mainstay. So the whole, the whole uh, point of gravity shifted in the direction of, of God-man. And, and we find this replicated age after age after age. Augustine discovers himself by discovering Christ. Uh, Newman discovers himself uh, only after discovering Christ, the two luminously self-evident uh, uh, certitudes of his life. So between the fourth and, and the 19th century, we're just, we're, we're, we have an embarrassment of riches. And the high point you've, you've discussed with Hildegard and Catherine and, and the example they cite of, of holiness is so infectious. Uh, it, it, it's so winsome that I can't help but think anyone who picks up this series will be enchanted uh, and will want to uh, follow through right to the end. Uh, and the end is when Christ crowns them with this uh, same uh, halo of, of holiness. So Godspeed 
this work you've begun. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Scott. Yeah, to pick up on what Regis was just saying, discovering Christ is what initiates um, a kind of divine circuitry. You know, on the one hand, you discover Christ, but then in the process, you discover yourself. You identify Christ as the Savior, and then suddenly you realize that Christ has radically identified himself with you and called you to be a member of his body in more than a figurative way. And I say that because, you know, I'm always tempted to kind of complain about God not doing things like Israel did for 38 years in the wilderness. You know, are you asleep at the wheel? If I were omnipotent, I wouldn't do things this way. And then when you identify yourself with Christ, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. You're not annihilating yourself, but that identification is so radical. And that's what I see in Hildegard. That's what I see in Catherine and all of the saints. So that, you know, you look at the Psalms and you find a lot of complaints, but you know, they're not complaining about God. You know, 44% roughly of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of complaint where you're complaining to God. And you don't complain to someone unless you trust them and you believe that they care and want to do something. And then in the process, the the, the circuitry is complete when you realize, wait, you know, I I see this evil. I see the corruption. I see the, you know, all of the the evil, you know, and I, I hate it in me and in the world. And, oh, you do too, but you love me anyway, and you love the world, and so you want me to recognize that all of these concerns, the anxieties, the fears, originate in your heart, not because you're anxious, but because you are the Lord, and you see the way people are living their lives or not, and you're sharing that anguish with me, with others, you know, and if only I could keep my soul from being short-circuited so frequently, you know, because I, I, fall, I fall back into, you know, just kind of murmuring, you know, again, Lord, if you are the head of this church, seriously, you know, what kind of business are you running, you know? But I, I think he, he will always bring us back and realize, you know, you're more concerned about the church in the world than I am. Yeah. And so let's just unite ourselves more closely. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much for being with us. Final thoughts? Uh, I just think it's... It's so consoling to me that God doesn't leave us orphans, Mm -hmm. you know, so no matter how bad things get in the church, no matter how bad things get in the culture, God raises up people who you don't expect him to raise up Mm -hmm. and he helps them witness to him. And he, they, you know, Catherine and Hildegard brought people back to the truth. They brought church leaders, you know, back to Christ and they didn't, they didn't make this place Eden again because it's never going to be Eden, but they did change the world and they changed the culture and they changed it because they said yes to Jesus and they said yes to suffering with Jesus. And so God is not necessarily calling us to write letters to the Pope <laughs> or say really mean things on Facebook or you know express our outrage in whatever way we think we need to, but he's calling me to say yes to getting up in the middle of the night when I want to sleep. He's calling me to say yes to changing another explosive dirty diaper when I really just want to be able to have some breakfast or finish a cup of coffee. You know, he's calling you to deal with students who are being students and parents yes. who are being You're parents. And <laughs> so there's these du- duties of life that we say yes to, and through that we become saints and we do make a difference. Imagine how prolific Hildegard would have been if she had a Facebook. That's I, I, I don't even want to reflect on that. That would have slowed down the process for canonization even more. I think. She would have, oh gosh, in the comments section. Hildegard in the comments section. I almost want to create a troll identity. Yeah, and an just endless Hildegard. Thread. <laughs> That's great. Again, thank you so much. 
much, Emma, yeah. for being with us. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, we have a handout that's available for you. It's an article that was written by Emily titled, Setting the World Ablaze, which is an excerpt on the mercy of God from the, her endowed study on St. Catherine of Siena. It's yours for free if you go online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number that you're gonna see on the screen in a moment. Uh, again, I wanna thank you for spending time with us and for the energy and the work that goes into writing, especially with having to uh, take care of kids and dirty diapers, which I don't have to worry about. <laughs> but what I am struck by, honestly, the, just by taking a look at these two particular saints is, and I celebrate this, that God uses different personalities. You know, I remember when I was a young postulant, uh, there was uh, a person who was quite different than I, and, and we just didn't get along very well at times. Um, but, but really understanding that God wanted me to be holy and that he was going to use this person to make me holy if I would let him. Hmm. And one of the things that I've just experienced time and time again is, is to move away from this image that we have of, of holiness. And in, in my experience, I, I think Catherine is kind of this image that we have. It's like, again... Believe me, I was not praying a Hail Mary on each step going up the stairs. <laughs> and, and that's great because that is, that is how God used Catherine. And yet there are other people that uh, he doesn't work in them that way and he doesn't show himself that way, but that they're still called to be holy. Uh, I, I would say that there are people that I live with in religious life that you would look at them and, and when you think of holiness, this isn't the person that you think of or the personality that you think of. But what this reminds us is that God can use all that we are, our brokenness, our personalities, our fears, our idiosyncrasies, our awkwardness, our weirdness, right? If we can use, if we can give Jesus everything, if we just say, Jesus, you have permission to use my life, he can do amazing things. And I think that's what these two women is, is that the commonality is that they were captured by Jesus and they totally profoundly gave themselves to him and he did amazing things with them. So we pray for that. We pray for those of you who are viewing that God would capture your heart and he would use you and make you the saint that he desires you to be because it's what we need in this time. It's, it's what we've always needed in our time and our culture that makes saints. So Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this day that you would raise up men and women of holiness, uh, transform their hearts and their lives that they'd become the saints that you've called them to be. May the Lord bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740 283-6357.